This is Leah Jones, Director of Financial Planning at Hightower Bethesda. Thanks for joining me today as I explore topics that I hope arm you with the ability to make smart financial decisions. This is Leah Jones from the Everything Money Podcast. My guest today is Hightower Bethesda's Senior Investment Analyst, Mike Zoller. We're doing a mid-year check-in. We're going to really focus on higher-level economic data and provide an update on COVID, both domestically and internationally. We're going to talk about just some broad macro indicators, address the hot topic of inflation, talk a little bit about U.S. stimulus, and talk about international markets and just pent-up demand in general. So feel free to tune into this mid-2021 year check-in and uh, gain some insight on where we are and where we think we're headed. Thanks for listening. Mike, thanks for joining me today. Sure, thanks for having me. So let's go ahead and, and kickstart this conversation with a update on COVID. Yeah, so I don't think it's going to be surprising to say that the big economic theme and the big investing theme right this year remains COVID. And of course, we've kind of transitioned from being actively in a pandemic and, and collectively as a society trying to figure out what to do. And we're now shifting into how to reopen. You know, just quickly running through some of these numbers on the average in the U.S. here, we're, we're hitting somewhere around 10,000 to 12,000 cases per day if you look at it on a seven-day moving average. And for the most part, that it really looks like we've got it under control here in the U.S. Those numbers are really some of the lowest we've seen since our country has gotten to some regular consistent testing. And it also seems that you know, vaccinations are really getting this under control. Right now we have about 65% of the adult population here in the U.S. has gotten at least one dose. I know we're a little shy of uh, President Biden's goal of getting 70% by July 4th, but we're in a good spot. There are pockets domestically where vaccinations are not keeping up, and we are seeing COVID cases flare-ups in particular. That's that's some of the southern states, uh, some pockets of Missouri. But, you know, here in, in Maryland, D.C., and Virginia, all three of those states are pretty well-vaccinated states, and we're really seeing that. I know, Leah, you and I, are, we're starting to be able to live our lives a little more normal. Now, of course, this risk about this Delta variant, I'm not a scientist myself, but this risk of the Delta variant is, is clouding the outlook a little bit. It does look like the vaccines that we've all gotten do provide a pretty high efficacy rate with this variant. Um, it is slightly lower than the original forecast, but I think we're still doing pretty good on the COVID front. Yes, I would definitely agree with you. I echo some of the concerns about the Delta variant. We have seen our international peers kind of go back into more restrictive policies over concerns related to that variant. And if we follow the pattern that we have followed, it kind of ends up coming around here later. So I think my concern for that is probably more in the fall, and, and we'll see how we fare with it. And, and again, hopefully to your point, with our higher population being vaccinated and under the assumption that it provides more efficacy against this variant, hopefully, you know, we'll be in good shape. So I, I'm an optimist. <laughs> I, I think you bring up a really good point, though, about how this is being handled internationally. And I do want to swing back to that when we get to our international outlook in this conversation, because I do think that's a really major thing in some in other countries right now. But I'm glad you're an optimist because I am, too. And I, I am enjoying being able to go to the beach and you know go out to the National Mall here. 
Yeah. Yeah. It feels good. I, I mean, I think people are still at different levels of how free they feel and how they're living their lives. But I know I got together with friends for 4th of July and it just felt really nice and normal and relaxed and it, it wasn't a thought on my mind. So Re- relaxed is the word. <laughs> yes. Yes. So that was, that was really nice. Okay, well, so moving on, Mike, I know you are a macro guy, so uh, there's a bunch of different directions we can go with this, but let's just talk a little bit about what some of the broad macro indicators are telling us. Yeah, sure. So, you know, we can probably start with GDP. And now let me precede this by saying that GDP isn't really that useful. It's a really high level picture of what's going on in the U.S. economy. It's very lagged uh, and it gets heavily revised. But if you kind of look at at the GDP numbers, we're in a very, very good place. Um, According to the Federal Reserve, we're past our pre-recession peak in output in the United States. I'm kind of surprised that we we did that this quickly, honestly. But there is quite a bit of an output gap from where we should be. We're still catching up to where we otherwise would have been if we hadn't had the mess of 2020. Growth rates in GDP are pretty strong as well. We had a bit of a rebound in the second half of 2020. And then that kind of continued into Q1. You know, we had an impressive number according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the BEA. We hit a 6.4% growth rate in our 2021 Q1 GDP. And that's that's a that's a crazy high number to put that in perspective. Um, but again, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I, w- I was just going to agree. I, m- I mean, I think everybody's seen strong signs of demand for growth, so much to the point where companies are, are struggling to keep up, right? So for example, I have a friend that just placed a order for delivery of furniture and it's not coming until November, right? And so anecdotally, that is happening across the board with almost every situation that you can think of, but in particular items related to housing, but it's also cars, right? And there's been a lot of news about chip shortages as it relates to cars and phones. And so there's a lot of growth and demand and uh, supply can't keep up with it. Yeah, you hit it on the head, right? If we're having some bottlenecks in very specific industries, right? Going on cars, there's, you see the headlines that there's some computer chip shortages that are really constraining auto production across the country and internationally as well. Consumers really seem like they wanna be able to buy cars. They're just not kind of able to right now. Um, and we're seeing these inventory problems elsewhere to uh, one of my favorite surveys, and we can cover in a little more detail, the ISM Manufacturing Survey, which is for our listeners, that's a survey of manufacturers across the United States, and they kind of give their outlook on things. The IMS, ISM Manufacturing Survey, they do an uh, inventories index, and that's extremely low. Basically, the companies aren't able to build up their inventories. They're basically selling their product faster than than they can produce it. So we are seeing some of these bottlenecks and that's creating some inflation, which is a major concern that I wanna come back to in in maybe a little farther along in our conversation. Okay, yeah, I, I think inflation is something that's top of a lot of people's mind. What about some of just the American consumer? Uh, how how is the American consumer doing after after all this trauma that that they've been through? Well, I think consumers are are really it's a function of the labor market. So, going off our GDP numbers, you know, I I pointed out there were some issues there. The labor market is not as caught up as GDP is. The unemployment rate in the United States right now is five point nine percent, and that's a little above 
our um, natural rate of unemployment, which is somewhere around four and a half percent. That estimate moves a little bit. But I kind of have issues. And I know, Leah, you and I have talked about this separately with the unemployment rate during recessions and recoveries. So just to give our listeners a little perspective, in 2009, the unemployment rate did start to come down. But the problem is, is a lot of workers started taking jobs that they were overqualified for. So they were finding work, but they weren't finding the good jobs. So in situations, in recessions and in recoveries, I really prefer to use what I call the underemployment rate that's officially labeled the U6. And the, the more common unemployment rate is called the U3. So the underemployment rate captures unemployed, the marginally attached, so those are people who are looking for work but not actively looking for work, and then people who have jobs but are working jobs that they're overqualified for. So we can use the example of, you know, Joe used to work in, you know, a programming company or an IT company. He got laid off during the recession, but he still had bills to pay, so he took a job at, at McDonald's as a cashier. Now, he's certainly overqualified for that job. So it's really not representative that if he has a job, unemployment rate would would not capture him. So the underemployment rate in the United States right now is is just under 10%, and that's down quite a bit from having peaked at 23% in April 2020. Now, for perspective, prior to this, this whole market mess, it was about 7%. Now, that 10% is certainly above our pre-recession levels, but for a little perspective or a little context, during the 2009 recession, when underemployment only hit 17%, that was lower than our peak in April of 2020, it took six years to get back below that 10% threshold. So what's going on today, and one thing I really want to emphasize is the recovery we're having today is not the 2009 recovery. People are getting back to work, people are finding jobs again, and uh, you know if you see the, the payroll numbers, right? Payroll for uh, June, uh, the most recent numbers were, were pretty strong. Right. And I, I know on that front, there's even been some debate. You've seen it in various state levels. We, we had it here in Maryland where some people are saying, hey, I think we're offering too much unemployment and we've got lots of jobs and we can't fill them. <laughs> so that is certainly was not the case in 2009 and 10 and subsequent years there where there weren't all these jobs that just couldn't find anyone, right? It was a totally different scenario. So so I think that provides some really good kind of perspective on where we are and how, how quickly really we got back to it. So, And I know another point that we've, we've all kind of talked about and are aware of is that there's just a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. Despite everything that you might think, there is still tons of cash on the sidelines. And that's both at an individual kind of retail level and at an institutional level. So again, that's not really necessarily reflective of a, a traditional coming out of a recessionary environment too. So in general, when we went into this, people were a lot healthier and are emerging out of it a lot healthier than any other type of recession that we've ever seen. I know when we, you and I talked a few months ago, about six months ago, one of the things I kept one of the big points I was trying to make is that the savings rate in the United States is it's absolutely insane right now. The the most recent number that I found was the savings rate is 12.4%. Now that is that's a ridiculously high number. That's that's historically really unprecedented unprecedented. There was a period in the 1970s where we averaged that for a few years. But for the most part, 12.4%, anything in the double digits is is just crazy. You know, prior to this recession, this national savings rate was seven percent. And then prior to the 2009 recession, and one of the reasons the 2009 recession was so much worse than this one, was that negative. the savings rate was, was yeah, well, <laughs> for some quarters was negative. So 
you know, collectively as, as Americans, you know, you brought the point up earlier that our consumers are really strong and they are, they're sitting on this cash and they're, they're excited to spend. I mean, try to book a hotel, you know, anywhere on the, on the shore on the East coast, you're, you're going to be spending $600 because people want to get out there and, and use all this money that they're, they're sitting on. Yeah. I've, I've noticed that with airline prices too, being in this area and going to Florida on average, you know, you used to get about a ticket for about half the price of what it's selling for right now. And part of that is obviously, again, it's just the same supply demand kind of balance there that's out of equilibrium. So I think that leads us to our next topic, which is inflation risk. So when prices are going up, when things are costing more money, it's because there's demand and there's not enough supply. And, you know, there's a lot of other factors. That's just one simplistic analogy. But, you know, we're, we're seeing it across the board in a lot of different sectors. Energy prices have just hit all-time highs, oil specifically. So what does this all mean? And, you know, what is kind of Hightower Bethesda's outlook on inflation? So there are three things going on with inflation right now. The first one is there's a thing that economists call the base effect. So if you compare inflation rates and inflation levels today to what they were a year ago, because we had a bit of inflation last year during the start of the COVID lockdown, even if we are only back to our normal levels of prices, there's gonna be this false sense of inflation. So our, our inflation numbers right now are being overstated because they're being compared to a lower base, an artificially lower base from last year. So this is something that economists and everybody in the industry fully understands. And so we, we all, you know, Leah, you and I, we understand that the inflation numbers aren't really representative of underlying trends. Part two, and this is another thing that for the most part everybody understands, and you know we may not be able to put a, a hard number on it, is this unleashing of pent up demand or this, uh, you know, people just trying to catch up on all their purchases. You know, for the most part, people weren't able to travel at all in 2020, and we are all we are all collectively ready and do a vacation. You know, like you said earlier, we are all scrambling for our flights to Florida, our hotel rooms on the beach, and, you know, trying to get in those casinos. So that's inflating airfares and hotel room rates. And, you know, to a lesser extent, we're seeing it in car sales, and it's also boosting up energy prices. The reason that the Federal Reserve and other policymakers aren't too worried about that type of inflation is one, because it's it's fully understood that it's, it's a temporary thing. You know, you can only take so many vacations, you can only buy so many cars. So once people kind of exhaust their desire for it, it does begin to fade. And, you know, this happens in every recession. So again, that's more of a temporary problem and not an underlying issue. Now, the third problem and the significantly bigger thing and the thing that people are collectively debating, including uh, our very intelligent members of the investment committee, is how pernicious long-term inflation is going to be. Now, you know, Leah, you, you pointed out correctly, right, that there's a lot of money flowing out there because of, of fiscal stimulus, both on the consumer side and on the, uh, the business side. Now, there are concerns by some that this much money is going to cause or it will inevitably cause inflation. Now, maybe you and I can have a mini debate here you know, on my side of things, I don't necessarily think that we are going to get that long-term inflation. My my primary argument for why is because while there is a lot of money available, the velocity of that money uh, remains very low. And for our listeners, velocity of money is basically how often a dollar is spent in any given year. You know, I get a, I get a dollar in my paycheck. 
I go out and spend that at the grocery store. The, the grocery store pays their employee and that employee spends it. That velocity of money um, is down about 25% from pre-recession levels. And then if you even compare pre-recession levels to where they were historically, there's an even bigger gap. So even though this money supply due to fiscal stimulus has exploded over the past year, it's really not being churned through the economy. So we would have to see that velocity of money pick up, accelerate quite a bit to really even see the potential for I don't know, Leah, maybe you have a differing opinion about how much risk there is about an inflation outlook. You know, I think that it's it's something that we have to continue to monitor, and we are, and, and we're really aware that it could be a little bit more persistent than people think. But I think what we debate is, is that persistence you know, one to two years? Is it two to three years? Or is it three years plus, right? I don't know that anybody is in the camp that we're going to have long-term persistent inflation. So it's more kind of what is the transition period look like knowing what we know today and some of the things, like you said, that we're monitoring, some of these indicators that will, will kind of give us the ultimate determination as to to who's right on the time frame, and and so nobody really knows. I would tend to agree longer term. I'm definitely not worried about it because I think the aging demographics of our country and the use of uh, technology, automation, these type of things are constantly kind of providing more of a deflationary macro longer term environment, and that's what we have seen to be the case for a really, really, really long time. And the other thing, if we looked at the last recession, there everybody was worried about inflation then too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the government's for, for putting much the exact same reasons, exact yeah. same reasons, and it never came, not even close. Now this, we're actually seeing signs of it. That there was actually no signs of it at all post last recession, but but we all know that the signs that we're seeing, at least we're we're hoping that they're more transitory versus persistent. So. You know, inflation, TBD, we're keeping our eyes on it, but longer term, we're not too worried about it. Before we move on, it might be worth pointing out that the Federal Reserve is actually getting a little, not worried about inflation, but it's definitely on their radar. You know, uh, the, at their June meeting, they pulled forward their forecast for when they were going to raise their interest rates, um, primarily because of this increasing risk of inflation. So it's definitely like something that we are all collectively in the industry aware of and we're keeping an eye on. Yeah, and I'd have to say, I think the Fed is has been very accommodative this entire time, which nobody could argue against. And they had initially indicated this really, really long-term period commitment to low interest rates, again, I think to really calm the markets. And now they're coming under a lot of pressure because inflation is high and that has basically never happened or hasn't happened in a really long time. And so I think they are feeling pressure to kind of respond. And uh, to your point, I think this is how they're responding. They're saying, hey, we're not too worried about it, but we're going to, you know, we are open to raising rates a little bit earlier than we initially indicated. So I like to call that a little good old fashioned backpedaling. But, you know, I mean, that's their job. They have a hard job. I don't, uh, I wouldn't want that job, but you know, I think think they're trying to do what's in everybody's best interest at the end of the day. So let's move on to U.S. stimulus. So obviously there has been a lot, an unprecedented amount of stimulus. You know, there's no reason for it anymore. 
And there's no indication that there will be any further stimulus. And in fact, as I mentioned previously, some places are actually turning turning down some of the unemployment, et cetera. So what does that mean? What, how, how does that play out? You know, I, I kind of like to equate it to, um, you know, if you've, if you've ever, you know, broken your leg, right, they put you in a cast, you know, you, you get the supportive elements of a cast helping you, but eventually you are recovered and they have to take that cast off. And the first week, two weeks, month, two months, three months, they hurt, right? You're, you're retraining your bones, you're rebuilding that muscle, but you're better off without the cast. And I think that's really where we're going to be transitioning to in the second half of 2021. Now that the federal government is, is pulled back on fiscal stimulus, basically the last remnants of what they had given us is, is really working its way through the system. But we're, we're kind of, collectively, the U.S. economy is going to be on its own. Now, there is a bit of a savings grace out there, and I'm fairly optimistic about it. It hasn't been passed yet, and there's there's some you know, there's a bit of a kerfuffle going on on Capitol Hill, but it does look like this administration is going to be able to get at least some type of infrastructure bill through. Now, in a way, this infrastructure bill is going to be a new round of fiscal stimulus. The details are really murky. Again, there's some debate between what's going on in the Senate, and what's going on in the House, but it looks like we're going to be somewhere in the ballpark of a trillion dollars in infrastructure, infrastructure spending. Now, the nice thing about this, rather than being a lump sum payment that really comes out all in one quarter, like in the more traditional recessionary fiscal uh, stimulus spending, um, this is really going to be doled out incrementally over several years. And another difference is that this is going to be, it's going to be an investment in the longer term. So infrastructure, you know, building roads, bridges, not only does it employ construction workers and engineers for years as the projects are being completed, but the infrastructure itself, new bridges, new railroads, improved airports, that pays dividends to local economies over decades. So it's not going to fill the gap of the fiscal stimulus that we got in 2020 and at the start of this year, but it is going to be a bit of a, you know, a caffeine boost to the economy over the next several years. I would also like to think, because there was an infrastructure bill passed by President Obama back during the last recession, and uh, it had good intent, but the execution, you know, had some shortcomings, to say the least. And so I think the good thing is, is that there was a lot of lessons learned from that. And so the need to improve our infrastructure hasn't changed but we did, you know, hopefully, knock on wood or whatever, have some bipartisan agreement, which is always nice to see that collectively that's still a problem and kind of learning from our lessons and how to execute on it better going forward. So that's good. And moving on to Europe and Asia. So, you know, international markets have had just a really tough time. I know we talk about this a lot in the investment committee, but, you know, the United States has outperformed international markets now for a really, really significant period of time. What is it, 12 years? Yeah, it's, it's been, I think it's been even longer than that. Okay. So it's been a long time, a very, very, I mean, just historically unprecedented long time and a pretty significant deviation between, yeah, or differential between, you know, the outperformance of the United States and, and Europe and Asia. So talk to me a little bit about that, Europe and Asia. Well, so 
first and foremost, it's going to be COVID and the vaccines again. Uh, and you mentioned it earlier, you know, it had looked for the longest time that a lot of the Asian countries had done a very good job of controlling COVID. But as we saw today with the on the day we're recording this, Japan just announced that they're not going to let any spectators into the Olympics when they previously had announced that they're going to allow 10,000 10, people. Basically, each of these they're having flare-ups, and part of that is this Delta variant. Part of it is we've all collectively become a little lax, and throughout the rest of the world, for the most part, they are having issues getting vaccines and then allocating them. So, you know, 2020 was really a I don't unifying makes it sound like we all were in, we were doing this together, but uh, there was really one theme that was driving the entire world economy, and it was collectively as a, as a global society we were shutting down our economies to fight COVID. Now this is going to be a much more localized fight, and it's going to be much more important to really see how each of these countries is handling, you know, country lockdowns, city lockdowns, how they're doling out vaccines, which vaccines they're using. You know, just to, to jump back a little bit here in the United States, because of, of issues with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, more than 90% of all the vaccines administered in the U.S. are the mRNA vaccines. Those are the Moderna and the Pfizer. Now, so far, those um, mRNA vaccines seem to be holding up pretty well against each of these new variants. Uh, you know, we talked earlier about the Delta variant. The more traditional vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson and then AstraZeneca, which isn't used in the United States, the efficacy was always lower than the mRNA vaccines, and it's even lower against this Delta variant. So you really are going to have to keep track of which vaccines are being used, you know, and I'm not even sure myself about what's going on with the Russia and China vaccines and how they're handling the Delta variant and, you know, how those vaccines are being allocated across an economy. So it's really going to be, like I said, a country by country basis or even a, a city by city within a country basis that you're really going to have to start monitoring to know what's going on at the macro level for these economies. Some really great points there, Mike. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's crazy. I, I think we're very fortunate here that we have been able to get the vaccines and that we're getting uh, the best vaccines that the world has to offer. And certainly that's going to help us. But it does seem like it's going to be on a case-by-case -case basis what happens with our international peers. So how do you think, I mean, just in general, right, what, what is this global unleashing of pent-up demand? What does that look like? I think collectively we're all in this, we're all in the same place, right? We all want to go out and spend, spend, spend. Now, the developed world, because they are really getting their vaccines out there, Europe is a little behind the U.S., Asia is uh, even behind Europe. For the most part, China is doing, doing fairly well. We are going to start seeing an unleashing of this pent-up demand. So many of the things that we're seeing in the United States, we're going to start seeing in Europe in the next, over the next few months. And then we're going to start seeing in Asia a little after that. Now, what that means is we're going to start seeing a lot more money uh, flowing into to travel and tourism. We're going to see it going into energy. And we're probably going to see an uptick in like housing costs like we did here in the United States. Now, just to wrap this all up, and I, we kind of missed out on this in our conversation about Europe and Asia, is what's going on in the emerging markets, the, the developing world. Traditionally, a, a spike in energy prices and a spike in commodity prices as people demand more for construction and lumber, that would really benefit uh, emerging markets. But all of those advantages right now are being offset by a still uncontrolled COVID situation. 
So for those people who want to invest in the EM world, for example, you're really going to have to navigate that very carefully because it's going to be a figuring out where's the potential and where are the constraints. So the EM world, they're lagging in COVID and they're going to be lagging economically for a while too on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. I mean, I think moral of the story here is as much as we wish that COVID was completely gone and over with, um, and as much as we hope that is the case in the United States, you know, it's going to be a more persistent than we would like. And it, it's going to kind of continue, I, I think, to have these different variants and to have flare-ups and, and those type of things. So we're not totally out of the woods here on this, but in a much better place than we have been at least each day we grow a better understanding of of what it is, what our defenses are and things like that. So, I mean, we're certainly in a much better place, but unfortunately it's it's not something that we can just totally shut the door on and, and say it's done. So. Exactly. Well, Mike, thank you so much. This is kind of our, our mid-year thoughts and ponderings. And thank you for having this conversation with me and, and sharing them with our listeners. And thanks. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. Hightower Bethesda is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Hightower Bethesda and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.